But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision fraction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I, I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Uh, let's have a bit of a think about our sermon passage for this morning, that the narrative lectionary which we're following takes us into Galatians. And uh, I'm, I'm reminded uh, as, I, as I came to this passage uh, that 2021, the year we find ourselves in now, marks the 500 year anniversary of the infamous Diet of Worms, uh, which wasn't some medieval fitness fad, but rather the church assembly or diet uh, that was held in the German city of Worms, but uh, infamously known as the Diet of Worms uh, by theology students everywhere. And it was at the, the Diet of Worms that Martin Luther, the founding father of the Protestant Reformation, defended his critique of the Roman Catholic Church and was ultimately declared to be officially a heretic. Uh, now, Martin Luther was the son of a copper miner who went to university before joining the Roman Catholic Church as an Augustinian friar, and he quickly set himself apart as a man with great academic gifts. He soon found himself teaching at the University of Wittenberg, and when he was 27 years old, he made a, a visit to Rome on behalf of some Augustinian monasteries. And whilst he was there in Rome, he just became appalled at the corruption he encountered in, in the hierarchy of the church. And the thing that most distressed the young Martin Luther was a practice known as the selling of indulgences. This is where priests would, in exchange for large amounts of money, perform the ritual for the forgiveness of sins, either on behalf of someone still living or indeed on behalf of someone who had died. What this amounted to uh, was, in effect, a license to print money. 
the great fear of the medieval mind, and it was a fear that the church did little to alleviate, was the fear of spending either eternity in hell or a considerable period of time in purgatory. And so priests offered release from purgatory or forgiveness for sins in exchange for money. And they clearly found that this meant they were onto a good thing. But the thing which so upset the young Luther wasn't so much the blatant profiteering from religious fear and superstition, as it was the propagation of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would later in the 20th century come to call cheap grace. Bonhoeffer takes up the story and he speaks of Martin Luther's growing conviction. He says in The Cost of Discipleship, when the Reformation came, the providence of God raised Martin Luther to restore the gospel of pure costly grace. God showed him through the scriptures that the following of Christ is not the achievement or merit of a select few, but the divine command to all Christians without distinction. So Martin Luther had his problem with the Roman Catholic Church and this gospel of cheap grace. And on the 31st of October 1517, Luther published his now famous 95 Theses, in which, you have to be careful how you say that, in which he attacked the sale of indulgences, along with what he regarded as many other abuses of the church's power. And as was the university custom, he pinned these theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Uh, it was kind of like a, a, a notice board. He wasn't the first person to pin something to that door. But what he pinned there, this critique of the Roman Catholic Church, in many ways began the European, European Reformation. And one of Martin Luther's great concerns was that the doctrine and practice of the church should be based on scripture rather than tradition. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. And it was his study of Paul's letters and particularly Romans and Galatians and particularly the passage that Nickwith just read to us from Galatians that led Luther to the conclusion that the Roman Catholic Church of his era had gone so far away from a biblical perspective that full-scale reformation of the church was needed. When Luther read Romans and Galatians, he thought that in Paul he met a kindred spirit battling against the forces of tradition and legalism in favour of liberty and freedom. The Paul which Luther met in the Bible, was a man engaged in a battle with a group of Jewish Christians who were trying to impose Jewish legal requirements on the Gentile Christian converts of the first century. And we looked a little bit at this in our sermon last week when we were looking at the council in Jerusalem. And Paul seemed to Luther to be arguing against legalism. He seems to be fighting against the attempts by certain religious leaders to introduce the requirements of legal tradition into the relationship between the ordinary person and God. And for Martin Luther, this seemed in many ways to parallel the situation in which he found himself. For Martin Luther, Paul's battle against Jewish legalism seemed to parallel his own battle against the corruption of Catholicism. And in this battle, 
Luther encountered Paul's doctrine of justification by faith as the final clinching biblical arguments that people are not justified by the church or by the priests or by indulgences or by any other ritual or practice, but by faith alone. As Luther said in his commentary on this morning's passage from Galatians, and I'm quoting Luther here, here the question arises, by what means are we justified? We answer with Paul, by faith only in Christ are we pronounced righteous and not by works. Not that we reject good works, far from it, but we will not allow ourselves to be removed from the anchorage of our salvation. Well, so far, so good. But, and it is a very big but, there is an issue here relating to the translation from the original Greek of Paul's letter. And it's one of those translation issues that really matters. I've had a number of conversations uh, over the years with people regarding the difficulty of translating things into um, different languages. There are people who are part of our congregation this morning who speak English as their second or maybe even third or fourth language. And I'm sure any of us who have tried to learn another language will know the difficulty that can sometimes be faced in trying to take a phrase from one language and accurately translate it into another. Well, this morning's reading from Galatians contains two words in Greek where it is not entirely clear how they should be translated. And these words are deceptively simple. They are the phrase, the words, Pistis Christu. Christu is easy. It sounds like what it is, Christ. And pistis means faith. The problem is they can be translated either as faith in Christ. We are justified by faith in Christ. Or they can be translated equally as the faithfulness of Christ. We are justified by the faithfulness of Christ. For those of you who are linguists, the difference is whether it should be treated as a subjective genitive or an objective genitive. But we don't need to delve into the technical jargon to appreciate that this is a significant difference. And there is no linguistic way of judging between them. Both are acceptable renderings of the original Greek, which means it is simply unclear whether Paul in Galatians 2.16 means to say, that a person is made righteousness by faith in Christ, or that a person is made righteous by the faith of Christ, by the faithfulness of Christ. Clearly, Martin Luther went with the faith in Christ reading, because it so clearly resonated with the attack he was wanting to make on the corrupting and corrupted practices of the church of his own time. Luther's point was clear. You are not justified by the works of the church. You are justified by your faith in Christ alone. And in opting for this, he made an exegetical decision which was born of his cultural context and which inadvertently set the trajectory for Protestant theology for the next five centuries. And there are some very good things that have come out of Luther's reading of justification by faith in Christ. For starters, it brings an emphasis on personal response, where you become a follower of Jesus through your free choice. This emphasis on the faithful response of the individual opened the door 
for a whole raft of breakaway Christian movements, including our own Baptist congregations, and in many ways spelled the beginning of the end for the unholy alliance of church and state, which had come to be known as Christendom. The emphasis on justification by faith in Christ also gave rise in time to the evangelical movement, with all of the great missionary endeavours that followed, as the gospel of Christ was conceived of as good news which needs to be told as far and wide as possible, so that other people could also put their faith in Christ and so be justified and made righteous. Again, all so far so good. But Luther's theology also opened the door to some truly dark places as well. And I'm especially thinking here of the way in which his conflation of um, what he saw as first century Jewish legalism became conflated with the Roman Catholic corruption that he saw in his own era. This paved the way for wave after wave of European anti-Semitism with a reformed Europe needing to be purged of the so-called legalistic Jews who had killed Christ. Indeed, one of Luther's more distressing works was an essay published in 1543, uh, which he entitled The Jews and Their Lies. I'm, I'm not going to read it, uh, any of it out to you, but, but if, you, if you look it up, it, it is um, a distressingly uh, overt anti-Semitic piece born of his disgust at Roman Catholicism and then his equation of corrupt Roman Catholicism with first century, what he saw as legalistic Judaism, and then outworking from that the, the tropes of uh, anti-Semitic caricature that he wrote onto the Jewish populations of medieval Europe. Luther's doctrine of justification by faith in Christ also led to many Christian groups overemphasizing the personal response side of what is required for a person to be considered a proper Christian. And this overemphasis on personal choice can lead away from the entirely proper freedom that we all should have to choose our own religion as enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, as we saw recently. It can lead to an in or out mentality where various shibboleths are used to define in ever more nuanced fashion the question of whether someone is actually justified. And I remember encountering this form of Christianity uh, over the years, particularly during my teenage years. Unless you believe exactly this, this, this and this, and unless your expression of Christian faith is that, that, that and that, all proved, of course, by needing to speak in tongues, then you're not a proper Christian. You're not properly saved. Justification by faith in Christ has become in, in many strands of post-Lutheran Christianity the requirement that you must choose faith or you are going to go to hell. And then you must demonstrate that choice in some proscribed manner as a requirement for full acceptance within the body of the church. Whether it's the requirement to say a prayer of commitment in a certain way, you know, the so-called sinner's prayer, as it was sometimes called, or the requirement to manifest a particular expression 
um, of the gifts of the Holy Spirit or a requirement to undergo a certain rite or ritual such as believers baptism. The, offend, the, the, the effect was to place a fence or a boundary around the people of God, whereby those who are in know that they're in and feel secure and those who are out know that they're out. In effect, we end up kind of close to the very thing Luther was trying to critique in the first place, which was using the fear of being out, the fear of hell, to get a certain response from people who were scared. And it's all rather ironic, given that this morning's passage from Paul's letter to the Galatians is taking us in a very different direction. Those who are enthusiastic about justification by faith in Christ alone will will quickly focus in on chapter 2 verse 16 but I want us to take a step back for a moment and remember that in Galatians Paul wasn't writing a thesis on justification rather he was writing a personal letter to some friends of his and his theology of justification by faith is not some abstract statement of the doctrine of salvation. It's rather the answer he gives to a real and intensely pastoral practical problem grounded in a very real and pragmatic situation. It seems that Peter, yes, the the Saint Peter of 12 disciples fame, had been struggling with the issue of how to relate to the Gentiles who had started following Jesus. And particularly, he'd been struggling with the issue of whether it was appropriate for him as a Jewish follower of Jesus to sit and eat with non-Jewish followers of Jesus. You may remember from the story from the book of Acts, uh, where Peter received his vision of a tablecloth spread with all kinds of food, food both ritually clean and food ritually unclean, that a heavenly voice told Peter to eat And he protested that he'd never eaten ritually unclean food. And the voice from heaven told him that what God had made clean, he must not regard as unclean. And it's clearly a a parable, a metaphor for him reaching out to the unclean Gentile world. And the context of this vision was that Peter was about to be called to the house of the Roman centurion Cornelius to lead him and his Gentile family to faith in Jesus without requiring them to convert to Judaism. Something that Peter, an observant Jew, must have struggled with. The message is clear. In the renewed people of God that has come into being in Christ, ethnicity and cultural practice are no bar to membership of God's people. However, if we fast forward some 20 years on from Cornelius's house and and the vision of the tablecloth to the city of Antioch, it seems Peter was still grappling with the issue of the full inclusion of the Gentiles who have converted to Christianity. He had been quite happily integrating his Jewish identity with the Gentile Christians there until some Jewish visitors from James in Jerusalem had arrived. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem and one of the brothers of Jesus. And it seems as if the Jerusalem church, based, of course, in the Jewish capital, had not yet properly addressed the issue of fully integrating Gentile converts. This was the kind of stuff that was going on in in the Gentile margins, the, the churches in Gentile territory. So when the visitors from Jerusalem had arrived in in Antioch, Peter and the other Jewish Christians in Antioch had started separating themselves from eating and socialising with the ritually unclean Gentile Christians. 
And so Paul steps in and he tells the Galatians in his letter that when he discovered this, he was having none of it. So he had called Peter's hypocrisy for what it was. Look here, Peter had said, sorry, Paul had said to Peter, you're a Jew and you've been living like a Gentile. How can you now force Gentiles to become Jews? I mean, I paraphrase, but that's the gist of it. And here we catch a glimpse of what for Paul was the defining issue of his ministry and his theology. If God has included in his kingdom the ritually unclean Gentiles, then the ritually clean Jewish Christians have no cause to exclude them in any way, including the refusal to sit at table and eat with them. Paul is utterly opposed to any sense of drawing back, any implication that the best or proper Christians are those who combine their following of Jesus with their ongoing observance of the Jewish law. Paul does not accept that those who are the followers of Christ, but not the followers of the Jewish law, are in any sense second-rate citizens of the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the Jewish law, but through faith. The context, therefore, for Paul's great statement in Galatians on justification by faith alone is that of Jews eating with Gentiles in the churches of Christ. And of course, for Paul the Jew, this was a radical departure from his previous beliefs as a Pharisee, just as it was a radical departure for Peter, the Jewish fisherman from Galilee. But for Paul, it's not a break with the past. Rather, it was the appropriate development of his Jewish heritage. For Paul, the stories of his Jewish ancestors found in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, were stories of God's ongoing faithfulness to God's covenant people. God had established the covenant with Abraham, promising that Abraham's children, the, the Jewish nation, the people of Israel, would be God's people and the Lord God would be their God. And the Hebrew scriptures tell of God's ongoing faithfulness to that covenant, even when the people of Israel behaved in ways that broke their part of the covenant. But for Paul, there was a purpose to God having chosen Israel. There was a purpose to God having called them to be his people and having promised to be their God. And that purpose was not to ultimately bring just Israel, but all the nations of the earth into the kingdom of God, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. And it's this covenant purpose that Paul understood as having been fulfilled in Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, Paul saw God decisively intervening in human history to bring about the fulfilment of his covenant with Abraham as the gates of the kingdom were thrown open so that all could be made righteous through faith and through faith alone. And here our explanation and exploration of Paul's thought hits up against Martin Luther's exegetical decision to render Paul's Greek phrase pistis Christu as faith in Christ. Many contemporary scholars are now convinced that here in Galatians, as well as in Romans and elsewhere, the alternative translation is more appropriate. 
So let me read you Tom Wright's translation of Galatians 2.16. But we know that a person is not declared righteous by works of the Jewish law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. It seems most likely that what Paul meant when he used the phrase, a person is justified not by the works of the law, but by pistis Christi, was that a person is justified not by their faith in Christ, but by the faithfulness of Christ. In other words, it's on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ to the covenant of God, demonstrated through his death and resurrection. It's on that basis that you and I are declared righteous. The human response of faith, my faith, your faith, is not what makes us righteous. God does that for us through the faithfulness of Christ. The faithful response of the believer is the appropriate response to what God has already done for us. The relationship between the covenant faithfulness of Christ and the Christian response of faith is therefore analogous to the relationship within Judaism of the covenant faithfulness of God towards Israel and the Jewish response of faithfulness to the Jewish law. And Paul is clear. For Jews, keeping the law was absolutely the appropriate and faithful response to the covenant faithfulness of God. But the works of the law in themselves did not make the Jew righteous. All Jews were justified and made righteous because of what God had already done for them. And it's the same with the Christian response to the faithfulness of Christ. Keeping the faith is the appropriate response to Christ's covenant faithfulness, but we are not made righteous by our faith. We do not earn our own salvation by some act of faithfulness on our part. Neither can we be declared excluded from the covenant faithfulness of God just because our own faith is lacking. We are declared righteous because of the faithfulness of Christ. We do nothing to earn this. Therefore, any attempt to introduce any kind of division within the kingdom of God, any kind of fence around the kingdom of God, based on differing responses of faith on the part of Christians, is every bit as bad as Peter withdrawing from the Gentile Christians in Antioch and refusing to sit and eat with them. And here, perhaps, we might start to hear the challenge for us today. Who, I wonder, might we not want to sit at table and eat with, metaphorically speaking? Who might we not want to share the food of the Eucharist with? Who do we think is outside the boundary of faith? Where might we start to draw the boundaries in our minds and hearts and lives, which begin the process of setting ourselves apart from others? Or maybe your experience of this is from the other side. Maybe you're one of those who has been told that you're not welcome in the community of faith because of who you are, because of your ethnicity, because of your beliefs, because of your gender or your sexuality. What 
works of the law are there in us? Which whilst entirely appropriate responses in themselves to the faithfulness of Christ, run the risk of becoming defining issues by which we reckon ourselves righteous and others unrighteous. In what ways do we need to hear Paul saying to us, we know that a person is not declared righteous by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Christ. Our faithful, ethical and moral response to Christ is certainly the appropriate response of faith, but it does not in itself declare us righteous. We are not justified through our faith in Christ, but through the faithfulness of Christ to us. And just in case Paul's Galatians Christians hadn't quite got the point yet, he goes on over the next few verses to spell it out even more clearly. The reason he says why Jews should believe in Jesus as their Messiah is precisely because their faithful adherence to the Jewish law had not, in the end, enabled them to be declared righteous. In fact, any attempt to keep the law for its own sake had only served to highlight the sinfulness that lies deep within the heart of humans. Paul was painfully aware that no one by their own efforts can become perfect. God knows as a Pharisee he'd given it his best shot. No one by their own efforts can banish every thought declared wicked, every action declared selfish. However successful we or they might be at projecting piety in the outward being, our souls know better and we cannot heal ourselves. The path to true righteousness lies outside of us, not within. It is found in surrendering to the one who is faithful to us and to God's covenant purposes for all people. We are declared righteous not because of what we do or who we are, but just because of what Christ did and who he is. And what he did was this. In fulfilment of God's covenant with Abraham, Christ died under the law so that we might die to the law with him. And in so doing, we might find release from the compulsion to seek our own path to righteousness. And in fulfilment of God's covenant with Abraham, Christ was raised to new life, to bring into being a new humanity where people are themselves made truly alive because Christ lives in them. The response of faith to the faithfulness of Christ is then what leads us to baptism. It is the response of faith that calls us to enter the tomb with Christ so that we might be raised with him to new life. And I'll mention again that I'm planning a baptismal service for later in the year. If you feel the call of God to follow Jesus through the waters of baptism, talk to me. But baptism does not save us. It is simply the appropriate faithful response to the faithfulness of Christ. We are declared righteous through the faithfulness of Jesus. And this is the gospel of Christ, and it is good news for all of us. Amen. So as we gather our thoughts, let's hear how some members of our congregation respond to what Simon's been saying. Can I ask our panellists to unmute themselves and uh, reveal themselves on video? Thank you, Liz, Philip, Nickwith, nice to see you all. Um, I wonder if anybody's got uh, a thought to lead us off in response to uh, Simon's uh, thoughts on history and language and theology. Perhaps I just go first. <clears throat> um, it's probably inappropriate to congratulate. It's probably the wrong word anyway, uh, the minister. But I think Simon has really 
brought us a brilliant critique of a terribly, terribly difficult and probing topic. And I think um, we could all learn from reading the text on the Baptist bookworm, um, which um, is, is, uh, contains all of Simon's sermons. And I think it's a brilliant one today. Um, I was brought up in a church with a, a strongly Calvinist lean, which in other words, um, believe very much in the sovereignty of God and a rather protectionist view of the doctrines of grace and this sort of thing. And <clears throat> we were certainly told the acrostic tulip. And I don't know whether people today are very familiar with tulip or not, or if no, remember what it stands for. Uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. It sounds so quaint. I mean, I can hardly believe I'm reading that now to a contemporary people who are listening. Um, and I had a friend, one of my first college university friends, um, strongly believed in tulip, especially the last two letters, the I, the irresistible grace. Oh, this person had it. You know, um, I didn't choose God, God chose me. This is irresistible grace. Well, of course, this is taught in the Bible and the perseverance of the saints. In other words, once saved, can we lose salvation? Can we take up God's offer of grace and reject it at some point? Um, but look, I, I, the, last, the second thing I'd just like to say, um, which is different as a tangent, and I won't say any more after this, um, is it's really about the character of Luther, because I did have a glance, um, uh, and Simon alluded to this, uh, and he said, would the people we would have at our table, would we actually have had Luther as a guest, knowing what he said about the Jews, and believe me, it is horrific. It is utterly horrific. And Simon didn't quote um, what can be seen online uh, about it. And I don't think I would either. But I wonder what we, uh, do we regard him perhaps as a flawed hero? Um, does this detract from his status as a great reformer? How does it apply to other people with, if you would like, difficult private lives or things we don't like? Um, the artist Caravaggio, we love his paintings, but he went out and murdered and led a very hedonistic lifestyle. Does that matter when we view the finished product? The composer Gesualdo, he killed his wife and her lover caught in flagrante, of course. And does that matter that we, when we listen to his glorious Renaissance music, um, in fact, he escaped punishment because the state thought that murdering your wife because she was caught uh, <laughs> having an affair was a good enough reason for murder and he wasn't prosecuted, which is interesting. But anyway, in terms of, of, of characterization, does this matter? I mean, we wouldn't have, and anyway, would we have had a reformation if it were not for Luther? I shut up. Thank you. Yes, yeah, some good questions. And actually, there's a new book about Luther, presumably to time with this anniversary, which was reviewed in the Times last week, making the point that Luther's anti-Semitic ideas 
were very much taken up by the German Nazi party in the run-up to the Second World War and the Holocaust. So they found justifications, to put this with the word we're using this morning, for their own horrific acts in Luther's works, which is fascinating. Anybody else on the panel got a, a response? Well, I found um, the sermon quite complex and I'm just, I was just trying to gather my thoughts around it. But when Simon was reading, all I thought was as if I haven't reflected enough this whole year that uh, all I thought was reflect, reflect, reflect. Um, and I, I, I still haven't really come to a conclusion, but I just thought if it, it, it's like if someone exists in God's eyes, then they are justified. And I guess we, we cannot um, be judgmental or say we are better than others. Um, and when, when he was reading, um, I was thinking about how Paul's argument sounded like a, a radical inclusion. Um, uh, sorry, I, I'm just reading my notes. And I was wondering how inclusive is Christianity um, when, when Simon was reading the sermon. But yeah, that's, that's all my thoughts. I think that's a very relevant point, actually, uh, particularly in the light of the other things that Luther said, albeit in the context of his own time. Liz, what was your thinking on this? Um, I'm really glad, actually, Nick, with, um, that you... I, I love your reflect, 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 because <laughs> I, um, I was thinking... I find... Um, I do... I'm sure we all of us find this whole topic quite challenging because, and, and sometimes it's quite liberating, but it's also quite scary because I, um, I find, I find, I keep coming back to the idea that constantly God is challenging us and moving us on and, and getting us to see different perspectives and realize that the, the box that we put around things is never big enough. And there's always things outside that box, as I think we was mentioned last week a bit. Um, and I kind of like boundaries. I was brought up to understand boundaries. And so the concept of um, not being able to put those boundaries around behavior that I think is wrong or that, that, that people that I think are not quite right or things that aren't, although it's liberating and I love it, it also makes me quite nervous about what do I do with that um, and I was actually reflecting on the the song that was one of the, the songs used today the the faithful one um, so unchanging um, it almost seems to me that the unchanging nature of God is that he requires uh, that she <laughs> requires us to constantly be changing so it's like uh, although I understand the song is it, saying something to do with the faithfulness of God actually it, it it's to do with our our willingness to always look outside the box and just see this thing so much bigger and the reason I love Nick with your reflect reflect is that 
I always then come back to, the only thing I can do is try and be open, try and listen to others, try and learn and, and gather as much knowledge as I can as possible, but em and empathize with people that I don't agree with. Um, and then just kind of try and look at the example of Jesus and how Jesus behaved with people. And that's all I'm left with really is this, you know, the, the, the fear is there, but that actually, I need to hold on to that liberation that actually this is a good thing just because it's not what I'm used to and, and because I'm having to go out of my comfort zone, it's a good thing. Thank you, Liz. Yeah, I just wanted to share something about how this um, relates to my thinking on international issues. Um, some of you may know that I started a new job at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London at the start of this year. And this week I made a podcast about um, the parallels between China uh, and the ideology of the Communist Party and religion. And we particularly talked about this concept of the Reformation and the battle of ideas. And what was very interesting was that my guest, uh, Clyde Prestovitz, saw a great deal of overlap between the political theology of China and the uh, history of the Christian religion, particularly in this period 500 years ago. But he was bringing it right up to date with current events in China since 2012 and the um, way in which uh, Xi Jinping thought is being uh, communicated to the faithful who are really forced to agree with every letter of the law and cannot hold alternative opinions. If that's a subject that interests you, then my podcast is called China in Context with SOAS. I make it every week. Clyde Prestovitz has advised five US presidents on China. It's very topical actually. And it does fit back with what Simon was saying, albeit in a different tangent. I'll put the link into the, um, into the chat in a moment. Really great, actually, to hear um, those um, diverse responses to Simon's sermon today. And um, thank you very much to all the people who put uh, comments uh, into the chat. Um, Jeff asks on this question about flawed heroes and whether we would sit down with uh, Martin Luther for dinner. Is Paul himself a flawed hero? Which I think is uh, a valid point. Um, and uh, yeah, there's quite a few other comments in the uh, in the chat as well. Um, uh, I'll let you have a look through those um, later. Now let's uh, spend some time in prayer. Philip Luke is going to lead us in our prayers of intercession this morning. Loving Lord, as we seem to be emerging from the long shadow of COVID-19 pandemic, let us lift our hearts in gratitude for the legions of NHS staff, carers and volunteers who have persevered through the most fraught and trying circumstances. Lord, we thank you for that special gift of perseverance. But let us remember too, the families devastated by the ravages of the pandemic and whose lives will be changed forever. For countries such as India that we have heard about today, where the shattering consequences of this disease seem to be escalating each day with fear an often ferocious stalking partner to everyday life. 
Lord, you have given yourself for our healing and for a hurting, bruised and suffering world, hear our prayer. And still in the shadow of the pandemic, we pray for those who feel forsaken, betrayed, for those who have worked and struggled yet have so little or nothing to show for their efforts, except the signs and penalties of failure. For those battling the legacy of abuse and who nurse wounds, wounds often with no visible scars. God of immeasurable love, be pleased to hear these our prayers. And in a continuing world of stress and anxiety, let us take some comfort, strength and reassurance from some scriptural words from Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And a moment now of silent prayer to bring before God any particular anxiety on our hearts. Let us remember too our own church community at this time, facing ever new challenges through live and online worship. We think of those known to us who are sick, hospitalised or needing particular emotional support. For those grieving over the loss of loved ones, Lord, even with reduced resources, May we aspire still to be a servant church grounded in the sacrament of care. But let us rejoice too in the various splendours of nature which gladden our hearts now day by day. For this is still the season of Easter and of springtime, God's pledge of new birth. Lord, help us to recognise the sacredness of this your creation. Grant us the grace to grow deeper in our respect and love for all creation. But to discern too the impact of our choices on the poor and vulnerable. Great Lord of nature, shaping and renewing, be pleased to hear these our prayers. A verse from a hymn pertinent for today by Brian Wren. In every insult, rift and war, where colour, scorn or wealth divide, he suffers still, yet loves the more and lives where even hope has died. Lord, teach us even in our gloomiest thoughts and doubting to believe resurrection 
and may we strive to live in your world as a people reborn. It is Eastertide. Alleluia. Amen. Thank you so much, Philip, for those thoughtful prayers. Particularly nice that you were able to bring us those references to scripture and to that hymn. So let's finish with a blessing. May the music of our worship accompany us through each of our actions this week. May the challenge of the sermon guide our thinking and behaviour. May the prayers we've made in church continue in our hearts. And may the spirit of community remind us that we are loved until we meet again. In Jesus' name, Amen.